right. To continue with the theme of the Hong Kong International Literary Festival, now we're going to hear from Canadian author. Canadian Cameron Duick has spent his life split between two worlds as a finance journalist and also as an adventurer. And he will be this Saturday talking at the International Literary Festival. And his subject is about his 45,000-kilometer trip that he did on a motorbike uh, from Minnetoba, where he grew up in Canada, to the tip of South America in search of his Mennonite, uh, um, uh, Mennonite identity. And his book is called Menomoto, which means Mennonite on a motorbike, a journey across the Americas in search of my Mennonite identity. And he talked to Radio 3's Anne-Marie Evans, and he began telling his story about the big adventures of his life. Well, one of the two biggest adventures... I guess the two biggest ones, the first one was in 2009. I sailed a boat through the Northwest Passage or the top of Canada through the Canadian Arctic. That was to research how Arctic societies, Arctic communities were adapting to climate change and how climate change was impacting them. And so I've always kind of taken this model where I like to do adventure travel to kind of remote places in order to tell the stories of fringe societies. So that one was looking at the fringe society in the Arctic. And that was quite an old boat or a character um, boat of some sort? Yeah, it was It was old, <laughs> not old in a romantic sense, just old in a ra- kind of a worn-out way. Uh, <laughs> um, it was an old boat. It was what I could afford at the time. And, yeah, it was a, it was a 40-year-old boat. I like to say... Uh, <laughs> In, in Chinese culture, obviously, the f- number four is not great luck. And I had a 40-year-old boat, and there was four of us that sailed for four <laughs> months and four days. And we came out of it alive. Uh, and then I kind of started getting into motorcycles. Drove across China on a motorcycle um, with two other friends, three of us, Cana- three Canadian guys. We bought motorcycles in Beijing, drove them all the way to Kashgar, and then sold them as I remember it, and I might, this may have been romanticized a little bit, but the way I remember it is that we sold the motorcycles open outcry, meaning you know we were yelling for sale, for sale. And one of us, one of the three of us, spoke Chinese properly, and we sold the motorcycles next to a guy selling donkey meat, and then with the cash flew back to Hong Kong. So that was a great adventure. And then my most recent one, which has produced the book Manamoto, I drove a motorcycle from Canada. So I grew up in central Canada, Manitoba. Capital of Manitoba is Winnipeg. And it's kind of the flat, boring bit of Canada right in the middle. And I drove a motorcycle from there to the tip of South America. And I believe it was 19 countries that I drove through to research my Mennonite culture. And so I ended up covering about 45,000 kilometers on that trip. When did you first come to Hong Kong? I came to Hong Kong in 2005 from London. I'd been living in Singapore previously, working as a journalist, working for Reuters in Singapore. I quit my job at Reuters to go sailing, so I sailed from from Southeast Asia to Europe. It took me about a year. I ended up from Europe going on to North sailing across the Atlantic to North America. And I kind of took a, took a year off sailing and adventure and ended up back in London and spent about, uh, I think it was six to nine months in London. Didn't find it quite to my, my liking. It just didn't seem to fit for me. And so I really missed Asia. So I thought I'd give Hong Kong a try. Now in Menomoto, a journey across the Americas in search of my Mennonite identity. You write very well, sir. Um, Thank and you. what I enjoy is that the, the people become very real to me on your travels. And what I also enjoy are your Canadian relatives and your Mennonite relatives, and they're all seeing you off. 
and uh, your aunt uh, making sure you've got oranges and yeah. homemade cookies with extra butter <laughs> and uh, your uncles are rather sceptically looking at your motorbike. Yes. Yeah, that was an amazing. So this is the the opening of the book, really, and, and the, it was the opening of the journey. Sitting around a campfire at the Mennonite landing site in Manitoba, where my ancestors landed in 1874 from Russia. Mennonite culture, we're Germanic Dutch people, but been chased around Europe due to religious persecution for several hundred years. And so that's what saw us being in Russia in the 1800s and fleeing from there to Canada. And so my great grandfather came as a nine-year-old boy in 1874 and landed on the banks of the Red River. Red River connects up with the Mississippi and it's sort of a really big river in central Canada. And They landed on the banks of the Red River and there's now a monument there and, and that's where I decided to begin my journey. And in order to begin my journey, I invited all my aunts and uncles and cousins and you know Mennonites tend to have big families so there was a lot of people and built a big bonfire and as you said, the, the aunties all brought home baked goods and we had a you know, sitting around the on the fire drinking coffee and eating eating great snacks and telling these stories about Mennonite culture and the diaspora and the transnational nature of Mennonite culture and always moving in search of land and in search of separation from society. Religious freedom would be a very gentle way of saying it. I think the Mennonites take it a little bit further, perhaps a little bit too far sometimes, really always trying to put some distance between them and the rest of the world. And this is what's caused Mennonites to just travel and, and to, to move, keep moving and moving and moving, fleeing government control of their schools. Mennonites have always insisted on running their own schools and all this. So that campfire on the banks of the Red River was, was, a, was exactly where my great-grandfather stepped ashore uh, in 1874. And here we were sitting around a fire telling stories and, and connecting the dots. And I was already hearing Pete, you know, my uncles and aunties saying, oh, yeah, we've got that great cousin who lives in Belize and so-and-so moved on to Paraguay. And I was furiously taking notes and, and you know, asking for phone numbers and, and uh, starting to kind of stitch this journey ahead of me and um, had this beautiful night on the banks of the Red River. And then the next morning they were all gone and I woke up and, and jumped on my motorcycle and started heading south. Yeah, so you stayed in the tent uh, that night and, and you were going to be staying in your tent on plenty of further nights. Now, yes. one of the things that you do to describe is that you travel through 19 countries. You also, um, when you first, and it's like any journey like that, I think you start off with straight lines and then those straight lines become detours along the way and you ended up traveling 45,000 kilometers. Yeah, so 45,000 kilometers, that's uh, just over once around the equator. So it's an awfully long way. It looks a lot shorter on a map. <laughs> now, it was eight months. Two of those, you were um, had a friend who yes. traveled with you. Six months of that, of course, you were going to these various Mennonite communities and you had your travels along the way. It's, it's interesting because the main thrust of this book is, is you experiencing this Mennonite culture throughout South America, but also looking or searching for your own Mennonite identity or perhaps retracing your roots. Tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. It was a combination of, a, this was a motorcycle journey I'd often had in my mind that I wanted to make. And the Mennonite thing began as kind of an excuse to be go on this long journey, but very quickly it became the driving force of the journey. I was sort of focused on this idea of the Mennonites that had come from Russia. So Mennonite is a fairly niche culture, I guess, in some ways, but it's actually quite a broad spectrum of conservatism. 
And there's also Mennonites that have come from Switzerland. We're related to the Amish. The Amish split off from the Mennonites. And so what I really wanted to do was research the Mennonites that had come from Russia at a similar time that my family had come across from Russia in 1874. And most of the Mennonites that live in Central and South America are actually from that group or that sect, as however you want to term it. We seem to have been sort of the most radical, most cankerous Mennonites that there were, and we kept moving. And so it was this amazing journey where I was driving through these countries and spending all this time alone on a motorcycle, sometimes weeks at a time, camping in ravines and on beaches and in the desert and in forests and all alone on my motorcycle. And then I would sort of pull into a Mennonite community and I would be surrounded by the smells and the foods and the language and the spirit of the people I grew up with. And my often I thought of my grandmother. I would be sleeping and the, the Mennonites are very hospitable. They invited me in, gave me a bed to sleep. And there was more than once when I'd be, you know, cuddled up underneath a quilt and inhaled deeply. And I'd, you know, I don't know if it's the laundry soap's the same or if it's just the love of the grandmothers that launder the quilts, but I often would lay in a bed somewhere in Belize or Mexico or Paraguay or wherever I was and and inhale deeply and go, wow, this could be, this reminds me of staying at my grandmother's house, which was an incredible thing. So even though I was in a foreign land, in a strange place, meeting people I'd never met before, but I felt this deep sense of familiarity and sense of connection with these people. And then I would again leave the community after a few weeks and be back on the road and alone on a motorcycle. And I often said, there's only room for one mind in a helmet. So you have a lot of time to think by yourself. So I didn't spend a few weeks riding across another country or until the next community, alone with my thoughts and processing all that I'd taken in. In order to rediscover my culture, in order to search for identity, I left Canada. I left my Mennonite community when I was around 20, 21 years old, around then. And I've lived overseas. I lived in the US for quite a few years, Chicago, New York, and then Singapore and London. And and so you kind of uh, lose touch a little bit with, I guess, your, your home roots. And also I think I, I had maybe thought that I had enough distance, having experienced foreign cultures and having lived in foreign countries and all, you know, being a curious person and, and watching these foreign countries, I wanted to apply that slight kind of arm's length critique to my own culture. In hindsight, I don't know if that's possible because I think the emotions came into play much more strongly, much more quickly than I, and prejudices and, and memories and stuff. But that was sort of my goal was this idea that, well, I've been traveling around the world. I've been going to all these interesting places, meeting interesting people. I want to go back and apply that curiosity to my own culture. I'm talking with Cameron Duick, the author of Menomoto, A Journey Across the Americas in Search of My Mennonite Identity. I think what comes across in the book is exactly that, is that you are very clear about what that you're describing now with the the grandmother's love and the smells that you knew and and there's something very at home for you about that but as a 2021 year old you're also keen to leave and discover other things you also describe your embarrassment particularly as a as a young man or as a kid about the traditional clothes that are worn and also that there was a among your generation was a tendency not to want to learn the or speak the is it you say platitch Okay, so the the sort of Germanic language spoken, but you still had that, you still spoke a rusty version of that, and I presume that that then got well oiled as you were traveling through South America. (laughs) 
It got well oiled, but it certainly alerted everybody that I met that although Sorplotich is not a language that many people speak, and if I arrived in a <clears throat> Mennonite community, our colony, they, they tend to call their communities colonies. Uh, if I arrived in a colony and would sort of announce myself, you know, I'd pull in on a motorcycle, mm. which are not in conservative Mennonite communities are not acceptable modes of transportation. And you're uh, what they would regard as a Weltmensch. Yeah, as a Weltmensch, yeah. <laughs> a world person of the world, yeah. And I would pull in and I would speak Plotich to them. I'd greet them in Plotich. And I think there was a mixture of shock, horror, and bemusement because clearly I was a Mennonite because I could recite all the names and the, the, the towns I'd been to and they could tell that I, I had some understanding of what uh, what we were dealing with but my plot teach uh was pretty bad and also i mean the dialect varies so they could tell us probably from canada and you know my appearance was not that of a typical mennonite arriving all dressed in black on a motorcycle heavily laden and covered with mud from three or four countries prior and so people were quite curious overwhelmingly they were warm and welcoming after uh, an initial sort of wariness but even while i stayed with communities for a while, and rightly so, there was always a little bit of a, I think, a slight level of suspicion. Uh, and I can only imagine coming in as an outsider would have been even more difficult. I mean, here, often I would encounter people who who, who had a brother working in the same, you know, uh, welding shop as my brother in southern Manitoba, or they knew my father, or, um, I mean, because the Mennonite community, the transnational Mennonite community across all these different countries is still very much connected by intermarriage, by church connections, by, you know, newsletters and newspapers and prayer chains and things like this. So... I was never what's a complete a, what's a prayer chain. A prayer chain. A prayer chain is if your family requires prayer for something, whether there's an illness or an accident or something that happens, you will then get on the phone and call a list of numbers and tell these people, please pray for this family, and then they'll call other people. It has a very good intent, a very wholesome intent, but it also serves as an unofficial news system. And so there's curiosity mixed with sincere concern. Now, as you travelled, of course, um, you're travelling through these different uh, countries and you're describing, you know, let's just say on the, on, from an aesthetic perspective that the traditional dress worn by Mennonites varies uh, depending on, yes. on the country. And within your own community in Manitoba, it's actually a lot less traditional yes. from that perspective. So I like to describe Mennonites in terms of the Jewish community. We're, we're completely unrelated to the Jewish community in, in, in religion and in that. But in terms of... If somebody says they're Jewish, that could mean that their last name is Rosenthal and they're a Wall Street banker. Or it could mean that they live in a strictly Hasidic community and dressed in a traditional way or they live in a kibbutz. I mean, Jewish is a broad term. It relates to culture. It relates to religion. It relates to, a, a, to an immigration story. Saying I'm Mennonite is the same as that. So I grew up, we had a car. Uh, we had a radio in the and house. It was a turkey farm. Wasn't yeah, it? I grew yeah. up on a turkey farm. Yeah. Grew up in turkey farm in the Canadian prairies. We had a we had a car. We had a radio. We didn't have a TV. That was considered too uh, worldly. And we went to a church-run school, and we're quite sheltered. We were actively discouraged from interacting with the community outside of our church community. However, on the other end of the spectrum, there are Mennonites who do not use automobiles. They do not use any motorized vehicles at all. I met Mennonites on this journey who refused 
refused to paint their houses. They left their houses raw wood because they considered that the protective value of paint was actually a bit of a falsehood and really painting your house was more about pride. And they wanted to avoid the pride of painting their house and so they just left it raw wood. So that's obviously the other extreme. And so saying you're Mennonite, there's a cultural aspect to it. There's a language, there's a migratory story, an immigration story, depending where your family came from in Europe and in which, which century. And there's obviously a very strong religious aspect to it. And it's all, all of it is sort of centered around this religious aspect. How are you regarded back home? I mean, you're the exotic one who went to Hong Kong, among others, but, but in terms of also your Mennonite aspects. It's hard to know. I, I've never asked anybody how they regard me at home, but I think there's a grudging interest and respect, perhaps. Uh, there's an acknowledgement that I've left the faith and left the community in that sense, but they're, they're silly amused and or amused that I'm the one researching my roots. That's the, I, I know my father has expressed surprise at this. My father's a, you know extremely pious man, a founder of our church that I grew up in, very religious man. And he finds it quite odd that I'm the one that's dug into our family history because he's like, well, you know, you left the community. What? Why are you interested in this? So I think yeah, I, I'm definitely the one that left. I mean, it's becoming more common now, uh, certainly with younger generations leaving the community. I guess when I left, uh, kind of the early early 90s, late 80s kind of period of time, it was less common. Most, most of my school friends are still there or have, have remained within the extended community in southern Manitoba in some way. But um, I think there's a – I think I like to think that there's a little bit of respect in the in the effort I've put into – digging into it, even though they acknowledge and are aware that I've I've decided to kind of forge my own path in life. Can you give me a bit of bad plot ditch? No, I kind of am a plot ditch reader. It's not a goat. I've got two of am a spatter and dot plot ditch. And I performed of am a reader and plot ditch. And show have am a English reader. And choik have a much more plot ditch reader. Oh, and that means? Uh, just in school, we spoke English in church. Sometimes we spoke German and uh, that I speak Plattisch, but poorly. What sort of motorbike did you have? I had a Kawasaki KLR650. Anybody that's into motorcycles will know immediately that's a very simple, single-cylinder, a rather rough bike, but known for its uh, durability. And as I explained to my uncles before I left, they were looking at my motorcycle and stuff, and and I was explaining to him, single cylinder, carburetor, no fuel injection, and the bike served me very well. I mean, some of your photographs that you've been sharing and also are in the book, I mean, you're, you've got every kind of tra terrain. It's sort of like desert, mountains. Yeah, it was amazing. It was this journey that, I mean, I crisscrossed the continents. I, I, I can't remember the number now. I think it was five or eight times that I crossed between Pacific and Atlantic. Obviously, in Central America, that's a lot less distance than South America. But I really zigzagged. I did not take the most direct route. Yeah, up into the Andes, went to Machu Picchu, drove across Sala de Uni in, in Bolivia, the massive salt flats, loaded the bike in Panama, loaded the bike onto a sailing catamaran and sailed across the Caribbean to Colombia. It was a heck of an adventure. And just the camping, you know, especially in South America, I did a lot of wild camping. I would kind of ride until I was getting tired, and I'd find a little shop and buy a few tomatoes, and I carried a little bit of food along, a bit of pasta, and I had a camping stove and stuff, and, and of course, there's good red wine for cheap in South America, so I'd pick <laughs> up a bottle of cheap red somewhere, and and uh, and I just camp I camped in soybean fields and 
Brazil. I just pulled off the road beside the road, slept in ditches, camp, setting up my camp. And my kind of my rule was if I can't see other people, they can't see me. So I would sort of drive into the woods or, or into a ravine somewhere. And sometimes I would kind of, I'd put my bike up on a stand and I'd stand up on the seat to get a good look around. <laughs> if I couldn't see anyone, I figured oh, no one else can see me then either. <laughs> and uh, so I did a lot of wild camping and that was a beautiful thing because being on a motorcycle, first of all, traveling on a motorcycle is a, it's a great way of seeing a place because you're completely exposed to the elements around you. You know, you drive through a little village in the mountains and, and you, the kids are screaming and yelling at you and you can hear that and, and you're kind of weaving around them and you can smell the cooking fires at five o'clock, you know, as the family start getting their fires going and they're cooking going, you can smell the dishes, you know, the smell of the food and, and you, you experience the elements, you get cold, you get wet, you get hot and, and you, you hear everything, you smell everything, yet you can still cover huge distances. You can cover hundreds of kilometers in a day. So it's just this, amazing way to travel and then you can camp carry your camping gear and i would camp in these amazing spots and you know just build a fire somewhere and i felt like a a real king when i'd be sitting next to my fire after uh you know having knocked out whatever it was a couple hundred kilometers and crossed a mountain range or whatever it was and i'd sit there next to my fire and the fire you know, off the reflectors of the bike and I'd have my little camp stove and make a little one pot pasta meal and be <laughs> sipping from my bottle of cheap red wine I'd bought somewhere in a <laughs> gas station somewhere along the way. And I felt like a king. I just, it was, the, those are some of the most glorious moments of the trip. And that was Cameron Dueck speaking there to Anne-Marie Evans. And Cameron also talks about a darker episode that he encounters in Bolivia, the case of what he calls the ghost rapes in the Mennonite uh, community in Bolivia. You can attend his session at the Hong Kong International Literary Festival this Saturday between 1 to 2 p.m. at the F Hall in Tycoon. And its book is called Menomoto, A Journey Across the Americas in Search of My Mennonite Identity. Mm-hmm.